Bible, 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Yes, we're returning to this text for the third time, and it may feel like if you've been following us in 1 Peter, we're jumping around a bit. That's because of some scheduling uncertainty on my part, but we will finish 1 Peter 4 today, and my last two Sundays will be finishing in 1 Peter chapter 5. So our text today is once again 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. This is the Word of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. My last two years of college, I spent many hours driving from my home in Northern Virginia to someone else's home north of Philadelphia. Just who was that person? Well, it's the same person I've been married to for 42 years. How could I tell that Janice was prepared for my arrival. She got off work, she looked great, she put on perfume, she put flowers on the kitchen table and served me quiche Lorraine. I guess that's what we were eating in 1977. Peter is showing you that if you are ready for Jesus' arrival, that's this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus is coming back again to earth for the final ushering in of his forever kingdom. Jesus is showing you that if you are ready for his arrival, your life will show it. And we've seen thus far it will show up in being a praying person, in the way you love, in the way you suffer according to the will of God, the last paragraph in the chapter and today we want to see that if you are ready for Jesus appearing, when the curtain on earth history falls and it's all over and his kingdom comes to earth forever, paradise restored on earth, if you are ready for that, you, your life will show it because you are a good steward. A good steward. And why not? That is the day all assignments are due. Everything is graded. It is your final performance review. When Jesus appears, that will be the ultimate awards banquet at which every accolade will be passed out. If you read through the Bible, it's very clear because the Bible affirms again and again and again that God will render to every single person according to their work. 
And followers of Jesus Christ look to that day not out of fear of condemnation. They are certain that because they belong to Jesus, they dread no condemnation. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. He has borne the condemnation for all of their sins one time in his body on the cross. If you belong to Jesus, you are forever forgiven. You are as righteous in the sight of his Father now as you ever will be. That day is a day of commendation. He will reward you for what you have done for his glory during the short time of your stay on earth. Paul tells us it's really a cause for good courage. Listen to how he puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 6. Paul writes, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. There's a day of accounting. God will reward, commend you for all that fruit that is lasting from your life. And it's so interesting that you get this vivid picture in the book of Revelation that those who have been rewarded, in this case, the 24 elders who fall down before God's throne, they've been awarded by Jesus crowns. And the impulse of their hearts is to cast those crowns before the Lord Jesus. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders Fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him, before his throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's as if to say, which is true, all the grace that Jesus gave us through which we served him and he crowns us, we give back to him the acknowledgement that it all comes from him. So, our sermon today, Peter instructs us in light of the second coming of Jesus to be found good stewards of three things explicitly, stewards of our minds, stewards of our relationships, and stewards of our gifts. Number one, in light of the fact that there's a day of accounting coming, the second coming of Jesus will stand before the judgment seat, we want to be found good stewards of our minds. So here I'm back to verse 7, which begins this paragraph. It sort of frames everything that Peter is writing here. And he says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I want to look at that word sober-minded a little bit more than when we looked at this verse prior. Sober-minded. The idea is thinking about life, death, and everything in between the way God wants you to. 
Now, if you are a person that's not particularly familiar with what the Bible teaches, you wouldn't say you know a lot about what God thinks. Think about one of the, uh, think about the two great commandments that the Bible tells us, love God and our neighbors ourselves. The first great commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. God wants you to love him with all your mind. And if that's a new idea for you, think about it the way you want to be known. You want people to think about you in terms that aren't, they're not thinking anything more than is true about you, or anything is less than is true about you. So when you understand the Bible, God says he wants to be known. He wants you thinking about him, not any less than God is, not any more than God is. And God wants you thinking about everything else the way he thinks about it. That's what we call having a Christian worldview. And you wonder, well, how do I know what God thinks about everything? We know that from the Bible. Whereas Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. When Paul talks about the nature of living in this world and doing warfare with false ideas and false notions and things that can lead us astray, he writes this in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're not thinking merely in human terms. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds of belief, strongholds of ideas, strongholds of worldview, strongholds of anything that's contrary to the way God would have us think. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Jesus. So here's real freedom. Here's life. Here's the truth. Subjecting everything you think about everything to the way Christ would have us think about so why is that important? Simply because this doesn't come naturally to us. And so if you have an outline, you can see there, I've got a little, a little thing that encourages you, to, encourages you to stop and think. So where does all the warfare strategic planning happen in America? At the Pentagon, down on the other side of the Potomac in Virginia. The Pentagon is a five-sided, five-sided building where there's strategic thinking about our nation's defense. So I want to give you a pentagon, a five-sided way of thinking about your thinking. Here are the five sides. Number one, thoughts have consequences. So everything you end up doing, pursuing, and desiring is actually the result of what you are telling yourself you think you need in order to be safe, happy, fulfilled, what have you. Thoughts have consequences, side one. Side two, you don't have to believe everything you tell yourself. Just because you're telling yourself that, you don't have to believe that. <laughs> Subject it to something beyond just what you think. <laughs> the truth of the word of God. Third side, thinking something doesn't make it true. We think actually a lot of things that don't prove to be true. Thoughts have consequences. You don't have to believe everything you tell yourself. Thinking something doesn't make it true. Fourth side, you should assume that the default setting in your thinking contains errors. 
the Bible teaches us that our minds are poisoned from birth by our indwelling sin. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin, from the Greek word nous, which means mind. They're just simply very honest that our thinking is corrupted, it's poisoned by sin. We don't naturally think the way God wants us to. And fifth side of this Pentagon, the strategic uh, a way to think about everything. When your thoughts comport with reality, with the way things really are, you'll have peace of mind and peace of heart. Because when your thoughts comport with reality, what is the central truth at the heart of all of reality? God's in control. And when you believe that, when you set your mind down on that, when the, the, the control of a good and gracious, sovereign, wonderful God is in control of everything in your life, it has to bring you peace. So it's not surprising that when we come to the Bible, we see that the Bible has a lot to tell us specifically about the role of our thinking. Let me just go over several things, several statements. I, I'd love to elaborate on them in, in, in a sense. Every one of these is a sermon in itself. But let me just call your attention to a number of key things that help you think about the nature of your thinking and the role your thinking plays in your own personal vitality and welfare. For example, the Bible tells us that we need a new mind to battle indwelling sin. Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Which would you like, death or life and peace? Well, it's where you put your mind. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. That's about the worst thing that could be said about a human being. Hostile to God unable to submit to God, that means you can never be fully human because of where your mind is. Paul writes, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. And it is indeed by the Spirit that we, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of illumination, the Spirit of revelation, that God makes the Bible clear and sensible to us, that we can know the mind of God. I said I wasn't going to elaborate. Forgive me. Number two, you need a robustly informed mind to fend off anxiety. Many of us struggle with worry, with anxiety. It comes very naturally, easily to a lot of us. Paul taught on that in Philippians 4, where he tells us to be anxious for nothing. And this little section, he concludes with Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, he says, think about these things. Set your mind on these things. So the truth then becomes a guard, a protector, a defender Un unleash the truth as received in the Bible against these strongholds of falsehood that lie at the root of your worries. So we need to learn to ask ourselves, what kinds of thoughts are producing the negative emotions that I'm experiencing? And you'll probably find the opposite of everything Paul just listed in verse 8 there. 
Third thing, the Bible teaches about the role of our minds. Again, we're saying in light of the second coming, we want to be good stewards, and we want to be good stewards of our thoughts, our minds, our thinking, our worldview. Third, you need a heavenly-oriented mind to be any earthly good. You may have heard the saying, that person is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. There's no such thing. That's a complete misnomer. You can never be any earthly good until you are earthly-minded. And that's what Paul says in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, by faith you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, by faith you've received him as the one through whom you are right with God, you are united to Christ. If you've been raised up with Christ, crucified with Christ, your sins were nailed in Jesus as you were, you were in union with Jesus on the cross. You're raised with Jesus Christ. When he was raised, you were raised to new life. Paul says, if that's true of you, then seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, your life is hidden uh, with Christ in God. A lot more we could say about that. If you go back at the beginning of Peter's epistle, right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, same word in our text here, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's an, there's an organic connection between being ready for Jesus' return and diligence, self-control, faithfulness in your thinking. Number four, you need a transformed mind to know God's will. Romans 12, 1 to 3. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We worship God in the way we uh, offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And he says, here's how you do that. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Five, you need a God-centered mind to be rescued from lies. I use the example of Peter's encounter with Jesus, Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus, uh, Peter got the right answer, you're the Messiah, the Christ of God. Go to the head of the class, Peter, good job, A+. Plus. And then Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, he'll be mistreated, he'll, be, uh, uh, he'll suffer and be crucified. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, not you, never. So the man who just got the right answer, you're the Christ, is completely corrupted in his thinking because Jesus turns and he says, he turned to Peter, Matthew 16, 23, get behind me, Satan. This notion that we can have a Christ without a cross, is distinct, distinctively from the darkness. The Christ has come to die in our place. Jesus has come to save us by putting himself in the place the wrath of God for our sins is deserved. He took it for us. So this is a satanic idea that we could have a Savior without a cross. And P Jesus says to Peter, you're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Okay? Peter needed a revolution in his thinking. He needed biblical revelation. He needed the truth about who Christ was as revealed by, in the word of God to think right about this. That saves you from being Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Six, last one. You need a Christ-imitating humble mind for healthy relationships. We've seen this over the last couple of years, Philippians 2, 4, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, which is a mind of putting the interest of others ahead of yourself. It's a mind. It's an attitude. More we could say about that. But that's a good segue to our next point. Peter is encouraging you to good stewardship of your life, particularly your mind, in view of the second coming of Jesus. And then he, and then he makes the point that we're to be good stewards of our relationships. And we saw this sermon a couple weeks ago about loving each other. So let's ask this question. Why should you think about your relationships in terms of stewardship? Aren't they just there, sort of on their own terms? No, I'm actually saying that the Bible teaches that you should think about your relationships as a stewardship. Why? Because the gospel equips you with a lot to give away. A lot to give away. When Jesus saves you and he sends a spirit to your heart, it's far more than simply a declaration of forgiveness over you, a declaration of righteousness over you, a declaration that my Father now accepts you, sinner, because of what I have done for you. It's much more than that. Our lives are filled existentially by the Holy Spirit with the love of Jesus. The grace of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, all seemingly intangible, come to us through the Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So you have a lot to steward the love of God in you. And the point is, your attitude towards other people will be a reflection of Christ's love for you. Your treatment of others will mirror his grip on you. And Jesus says to you in the gospel, I took you, not because you were special, but so that you might know I'm special. You're special to me. I'm not letting you go. And so because Jesus' love for us is tenacious, Nothing in heaven and earth can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been learning in our study in Romans. That means ours should be as well. And that's verse 8. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Let me explain one other reason why you should think of good stewardship in your relationships. When Jesus comes again, and it's the day of accounting, it's your final exam, it's the awards banquet. Everything's going to, all the accolades for your life are going to be handed out. Judgment Day will have a very specific focus on how you treated others. This is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 25. And what we learn there is there's no scoreboard in heaven for how many arguments you won, how much people esteemed you, how competent you appeared in other people's eyes. No, there's just an accounting of the love you showed others in Jesus' name, especially the least of these. And Jesus tells us 
what those people are. There are people that are apparently replete of the resources, but expanded a little bit. You and I tend to be blind to the fact that those we are least inclined to bless, right? People we judge undeserving of our attention, our love, and our resources. There are people like that in your life. You might have family members like that. People in the church, you just kind of judge them. They're undeserving of my love, my time, my resources. Well, they, the least of these, they are actually Jesus himself. So you've made a judgment not to share the love of Christ in your heart with Jesus himself. That's a pretty sober reality. So Jesus said, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, or not done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So that means, beloved, if in your relationship you are fundamentally seeking to get to receive, and thus making the relationship about you, if you're seeking to get approval, get cooperation, get control, get admiration, you have missed the point of human relationships. Relationships are measured by and designed for what you give. That's what Jesus is saying. So just stop and think, is there anything in this relationship in my life that I am trying to prove? The only thing you're called to prove is how great a servant you are to that person. That's a segue to our last point. We're saying, Peter's saying, that in view of Jesus appearing at the second coming, we're going to be found stewards. Stewards of our minds, stewards of our relationships, and finally, stewards of our gifts. And this is verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So there's a lot to observe about these verses. I'm going to walk you through phrase by phrase, and let's make some observations first. As each has received a gift, that means if you belong to Jesus you have at least one spiritual gift you're to be using. And it is a gift, charismata, a gift of grace. Technically, it's God's gift. He's given to you. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's of grace. God's the giver. They sort of ultimately belong to him. So you use his gifts, and you use them as a steward. Peter writes, as good stewards of God's varied grace. What is required of stewards? That they're faithful. Not that they're perfect. Not that they're prolific. You'll never be perfect using your gift. Not this side of heaven. And you may be prolific if God would so will. That's up to you and the Lord and how successful, so to speak, you want to be with your gift. You are called to be faithful. And there are a variety of gifts. Peter calls it God's varied grace. You look in the New Testament, you see a list of gifts in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. The lists are not exhaustive of all the lists are not exhaustive of all the gifts. They're representative. So there's lots and lots and lots of spiritual gifts. And what is their purpose? That you might use it to serve one another. So you think about your gift and you're always asking this question. 
What does that person need? How will they benefit from the gift I have? How will what I have, my gift, edify them, benefit, benefit them, serve them? And the gifts reveal that God is at work. This is verse 11. Whoever speaks as who, the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. You see here probably two broad categories of gifts speaking and serving, under which you could tease out a lot of specific gifts. Peter's point seems to be, you're using your gifts with seriousness of purpose. I want my words to be as if God were speaking. I want my servants to be as if God is giving the strength right here. Seriousness of purpose. So that when your gifts are being used, people might say, I have a really clear sense the Lord is in this. So let me conclude by asking this question. I'm sort of ask it as a pastor who's been around church for about four decades. And I've seen people uh, use and not use their gifts. What are some of the ways we fall down in the stewarding of our gifts? I hope this is helpful to you. So I'm going to list a number of ways we miss the mark when it comes to stewarding our gifts. First is gift projection. That means thinking this way, everyone should be like me. So if I have the gift of discernment, I think everyone should be equally as discerning as I am. No. Thank God you have that gift. Somebody else has a different gift. So that's gift projection. Everyone should be like me. Then you have gift abuse. That would be using that gift, say leading, speaking, in such a way as not to be motivated to edify others, but to further your own agenda. And unfortunately, a huge theme in the evangelical church is the abuse of pastoral leadership, the abuse of power, which is an awful thing in the eyes of God. How about gift cop-out? Well, since I don't have that gift, I'm off the hook. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't have the gift of giving. I don't have the gift of serving. I don't have to do that. No, 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 no. You're not off the hook. See, every gift has a flip side, which is a Christian responsibility. I might not have the gift of giving. I'm still required to give. I might not have the gift of evangelism. I'm still required to do evangelism. You might not have the gift of administration, but to some degree, you're called to administer something in your life. How about gift excuse? That would be not meeting a need because it's not one of your gifts. Years ago, I was planting a church. We were using rented space, and therefore, after the worship service, we had to pick up hymnals. I said to somebody who was there, hey, help me grab these hymnals. He said, that's not my gift. Well, I think it's obvious to you, you don't need the gift of service or helps to pick up a hymnal. You know, a lot of you have gone out of your way to supply food to the college Park food bank during the pandemic. Some of you even coordinating that effort. You didn't necessarily do that because you had the gift of giving, the gift of service or helps or administration. You did it because in the name of Jesus, you wanted hungry people to have food. You just simply met a need. How about gift envy? Oh, I wish I had that gift. Oh, I wish I could play guitar like Andy or Wade. Oh, I wish I could sing like Eileen. Oh, I wish I could do this like that. Gift envy. <laughs> you got your eyes on the wrong thing. You should be asking Lord, the Lord, what's my gift and how can I be faithful using it? Well, 
that's the next place we go wrong. Gift ignorance. You don't know what your gift is. What should you do? One place to start is, is if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, ask, well, where do I have natural talents? Things I'm naturally good at, just you know, human abilities. There might be correspondence there. The other thing you should do is just look around and ask the question, where is God working? Where are there needs in the church? And step in and begin to help those needs and see if in helping and serving, a gift arises. It may or may not be. When Janice and I were first married, that's the person I was driving to see up in Philadelphia all those miles. When Janice and I first were involved in our PCA church in Charlottesville's newlyweds, they said, oh, look, look at this young couple. We're sending them down the hall to work with the high school kids. Fine. We were willing. We'd put us to work, whatever you want. So there we are. We went down. We started working with the high school, high school kids. And what became evident to me and Janice, this, this isn't our area of gifting. So, you know, we served for a season. That's fine. They needed warm bodies to help, et cetera, et cetera. But it turned out that wasn't the place, that wasn't the kind of person in the church I believe God gifted me to bless in a special way. So eventually we stopped working with youth, and I work with a different population in the church. Good story. The point is, is there a need? Go willingly. See what happens. If there's joy and effectiveness, maybe you're gifted there. If there's not, in Jesus' name, you served anyway. And then you find a place where you are called to serve. Next place we sort of get crosswise in the use of our gifts. Gift neglect. That's having a gift that you're not using, or you're not improving, or you're not developing, or you're not praying for greater effectiveness. Now Paul, in teaching on spiritual gifts, says this, when everyone in the church uses their gifts, we all benefit. We all benefit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's talking about spiritual gifts. You have a gift Wallace needs. To the extent you use it, we all benefit. To the extent it lies dormant, we all suffer. So, you should expect your next pastor, once he gets to know you, to ask you what question, among others. You should expect him to ask you, oh, tell me where you're using your gifts here at Wallace. You should expect them to ask you that. Hopefully there's an answer. I'll tell you this story. When I was church planting in another place, I would always follow up with people who visited the church, and my basic agenda was to find out if their interest in church matched what we were, and then say, well, you come and join us, let's co-labor and partner together. And I finally grew tired of asking that question, because I felt like all I was doing was just serving of whatever the personal agenda of the person exploring our church happened to be. So I stopped asking that question. What do you want in a church? And I started asking this question. How is it you want your children observing you serving Jesus in the church? See, that, that puts it on different terms, doesn't it? It identifies them as a believer with a gift that they're responsible and privileged to be using for the benefit of the church. Okay, those are my church 
planting stories for today. Next gift uh, error, gift impotence. And that is using your gifts, but not thinking about praying that the Holy Spirit empower it for usefulness. Next one, being gift critical. Not liking the way other people use their gifts. And look, there's always room for improvement and critique and evaluation and assessment. That's fine. I've encouraged your elders with their new pastor to have annual reviews of how he's doing. But gift critical, it reminds me of the story of the famous evangelist from the 20th century, D.L. Moody. He was known for his open-air preaching and evangelism. And someone started criticizing him for the way he did evangelism. And he said, I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing evangelism. Gift critical. And then gift pride. Forgetting that our gifts are to be exercised for the glory of God. Not to make us look good, not to show how talented, uh, to, to show people how talented we are. And this is verse 11. How does he conclude this thing on stewardship? In order that, here's the purpose, here's where it's moving, here's your ultimate motive, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What is the ultimate motive for using your gifts? The glory of God. Why? He deserves it. And think about how when you use your gifts, you are ultimately reflecting the one who is the gift of gifts, Jesus you're ultimately reflecting something about the glory of his cross. Because when Christ gave himself up for us, he was exercising absolutely faithful stewardship of his life, of his righteousness, of his obedience, dying in obedience to his Father for us. Jesus was the faithful steward that motivates us. And he did it as our gifts are to serve others. He did it to serve our best needs in ways we cannot even imagine. <laughs> to make us his. To fit us for heaven. And to make us trophies of his unspeakable and immeasurable grace. <laughs> so when you use your gifts, you're ultimately calling attention to him who is charisma, grace, Jesus. May he be glorified here as we reveal him and his goodness, his grace, his glory, his dominion, using our gifts for each other's good and Jesus' glory. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that when you rose on high, you gave gifts to men and women and their children. May Wallace increasingly be a place where there is freedom joy and power and opportunity to use these gifts to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand with me if you are able. We'll sing a, a hymn of response about the church. 355, we are God's people. <laughs>